This podcast was created to educate listeners on the experiences of diverse individuals. However, all opinions expressed by the host or guests do not reflect the overall standing of Tarleton Radio or Tarleton State University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Making Space, a Diversity Dialogue, and I'm your host, Cole. This is a bi-weekly podcast where together we'll have questions answered about socially sensitive topics while learning how to create lasting relationships with diverse people. Today, we are addressing the relationship between the LGBTQ community and religion. Specifically, we'll be touching on the intersections and clashes between Christianity and this group. To help me with this discussion is a local faith leader, Reverend Bradley Dyke. He and his family moved to Stephenville in 2017 when Father Bradley was elected as rector or presiding priest over St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Stephenville, Texas. We did do a separate interview this week, so I'll let him tell you a little bit more about how he came to be the priest at Stephenville's St. Luke's Church. When I was a kid, um, there was actually an oil boom going on in my hometown. Like it was just expanding explosively. Mm-hmm. We were United Methodists and we had been, we had moved to that town specifically because my dad was in the oil industry and we went to the first United Methodist church, but because of the oil boom, there were so many people like you had to sit in the floor. Kids had to sit in the floor. It was probably against every fire code known to man. And across the street, there was a church that did not look like it was overflowing with people. Oh, no. And that was the Episcopal Church. And so that's where we went. Uh, And that's where I got baptized in the fourth grade. And I started going to summer camp. That was an Episcopal summer camp. And there I learned about a God who loved me no matter what. In fact, Mm -hmm. I remember uh, there was a group of us and we were going from a lake up to where the cabins were. And one of the kids started talking about someone as being gay and in a very pejorative sense. And I remember the counselor, Shelby, he's now a Mm -hmm. priest. And he set us all down and said, you know, what if being gay wasn't something that God cared about? What if, Um, God loved everyone. And, you know, I lived into that vision and nurtured that within myself to the point that when I was in middle school and the victim of a lot of bullying and all that sort of stuff, um, I wanted to kill myself, but I had these intense experiences of Jesus appearing to me as almost like a ghost, like could see through him, but could see him and saying, put that down as I would um, grab an exacto knife. And, yeah. and so I felt this intense connection to Jesus and to God and to a loving God. And when I went to college, I had this series of profound experiences, including dreams, wherein I would be surrounded by priests, like everyone's wearing like a black shirt and a white collar. And it was like a banquet table and there were men and women and all different types of people. And I was there and I felt more at home there than I felt anywhere else. Wow, that's incredible. Finally, I started, one day I woke up and I was singing this song from the movie, The Color Purple. Um, Maybe God is trying to tell you something. 
maybe God is trying to tell you something. And I, this is funny now. So I, <laughs> okay. I, I, I left campus because I could not stop singing this out loud. Like I'm singing oh, it no. hour, you know, and this is Lubbock, Texas. So, um, right. and so I decide that I'm going to go get lunch and do laundry at my cousin's house. And so I go to a Taco Bell drive-thru and I want to be clear that I'm between where I have given my order for um, some beanie burritos and <laughs> it up. And I am thinking about all of this and I feel this blow to the back of my head. Now I consider it very ironic because uh, I believe in a nonviolent God, but I felt a blow <laughs> like a mother sort of hitting the back of your head if you're and Right, like an annoyed, like, come on, yes. get the message. And, and basically, I heard a voice say, listen to me. And it was at that moment, from that moment on, that I knew I wanted to be a priest. Wow. In Oklahoma in the late 90s, the Episcopal Church as a wide group had been growing much more supportive of gay folks um, and and had affirmed that we were beloved children of God since 1976. But, you know, in terms of us gaining structure and power um, within the system, that was more limited and had not really happened in Oklahoma. And so even though there were seminaries closer to Oklahoma, I asked to go to seminary in New York City because I needed the experience of seeing other gay folks in leadership. Right, and, being in that community. Yeah. And then um, have the intersection. Right, like I went to several other seminaries and interviewed and the seminary in Austin had never had a gay person attend or an openly gay person attend. And in Virginia they had, but they had this deal where professors, if they were um, bigoted, um, they, could, they could refuse to grade you based on that. And oh, wow. it was a way, it was a proactive measure to try and support gay folks because what was happening was professors were writing horrible reviews of gay folks. Mm, and okay. so they acted up. So I needed to go to a place that dealt with openly gay folks that were very supportive. So right. I ended up in um, New York City for seminary and after school, I should have gone back to the Diocese of Oklahoma, but they, in a weird, weird um, sort of part of my life, I interviewed at a church in Oklahoma and they said, this board, um, this vestry said, oh, it's so great that you're coming here as a gay man. And I'm like, because this was a very waspy country club parish and it was the only place I was allowed to interview at. And, and the woman said, because we understand that if you come here, you'll be celibate. And we have oh. two two teenagers who identify as gay and you can teach them to be celibate. Oh. And I'm not gonna lie, I, I was willing at the time to do two years of that job mm -hmm. if that statement hadn't been made. I was willing right. to try and not connect with another man or anything like that. But when they said that, you know, like mm -hmm. my inner Jesus was like, put that knife down. Yeah, and, it's a difference between acceptance and tolerance. Yes, and so I, um, I told the bishop and that church that I would not go there, and I was immediately kicked out of the ordination process. Oh, no. There were two women who saved me, um, who were really willing to go to bat for me, 
And so I got reinstated as long as I would find another job. Mm-hmm. And I found a job in the suburban New York City area, um, lived and worked there at two different churches for about, about 15 years. And in that time, two of my best friends had asked me if I was willing to be a donor so that they could have a child. Child, There was a lesbian couple, mm-hmm. really good friends. And like we celebrated holidays together. They came and would fix me dinner between Christmas Eve services. And, right. yeah. and it seemed very natural. And we thought I would be more like an uncle situation, but we did have a child um, named Sheridan. And eventually we realized I wasn't an uncle. I was a dad. Mm. And because I was taking care of her, since I had days off during the week, I was taking care of her two days a week. And that bond was just there and none of us could deny it. And so we kind of became co-parents. And in the meantime, one of those women, Teddy, her mother died and she was originally from Weatherford and had a nice family place on Lake Weatherford. And she had this yearning to go back home. Mm. And so the rest of us really couldn't deny that to her. And so three years ago, without a job or any plans, um, Frank and I loaded up a U-Haul and he drove the car and I drove the U-Haul and we made our way from just north of New York City to Plano, Texas, where we moved in with my dad. Now, in this area... (laughs) What a long trip. Yes, it was a very long trip. Um, Thankfully, one of my best friends from seminary lives halfway between those two places. So we took a few days off in Lexington, Kentucky and rode horses and played tourists mm-hmm. for a while. Um, but we moved in with my father, put all our stuff in storage and we waited. And eventually someone from this diocese told me about a church in Stephenville that was undergoing a transition. And mm-hmm. so in 20, late 2017, I interviewed my first interview for that job. And as you can imagine, um, they were a little concerned about um, my and Frank's well-being in Stephenville. Taking right, definitely. Over. Not New York at all. Yes, not New York. And, you know, I knew that. And I, I felt like I had lived in a bubble and after the 2016 election, I wanted to challenge that and to use my ministry to challenge some of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really necessarily think I was going to go into just an exact opposite bubble. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Stephenville is definitely in a bubble that doesn't really uh, explore the outside too much. Yes. And Uh, diversity, for sure. Right. And so I heard about this position, I interviewed, and though the process normally takes about six months to be hired by a church in my case it took more like nine Mm. and it was because they knew and acknowledged that they needed to do the work and they were very i have to give so many props to this diocese because they really made them do the work and not me do the work for them Mm. you know they invited them to do mock interviews with openly gay clergy um, before they ever met with me. Um, They they talked about their own feelings. They knew that people would leave if I came here. And 
yet that's where they felt called to move. And so in April of 2017, we moved here and have been serving here for almost two and a half years. And it's, it's been challenging, amazing, and wonderful and very hard. And wow. It's, that's an incredible story, definitely. And it's an incredible journey that you've taken to just being here and being in a place that it's not, definitely not as welcoming. And what, what, did you, what would you say the biggest differences are between having your practice or being a leader here versus being a leader of faith in, in New York as well as being openly gay? Um. Whether I like it or not here, I am having to teach people about what it means to be an ally mm. to the LGBTQ community. I feel like in New York, there was a base group. Maybe some people were not as sensitive as others um, and certainly not necessarily willing to take a sacrifice for gay folks. But right. I felt like there was a basic understanding, a basic acceptance and even a community very close by that was very supportive and very embracing. And I also had lots of fellow clergy who were gay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a little rarer here. And so I feel like my role is different in that sense. And it's something I'm willing to take on. It, it shouldn't necessarily be my responsibility to educate the public about LGBT. Right, right. But I am knowingly making that self-sacrifice and and I'm willing to do so. You know? There's just a yeah, a base difference in knowledge and like vocabulary and everything here versus there. Yeah, you know, like I remember when there would be devastating legal blows or joys mm -hmm. for the LGBT community. And I know especially on the blows, um, in New York, there were a lot of people who would reach out to me to check and see if I was okay. And I don't think there's that level of sensitivity here yet. Um, mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that it will be here, but it's not there yet. Right, right. Now going back a little bit, um, before you came to Stephenville, was it easy becoming a priest and being openly gay? What was, was the process a lot different? I know you talked about um, your interviews in seminary, but being ordained, was it a crazy experience? Was it just kind of hushed? Well, how was that like? All of the above. Um, so in the process for ordination in the Episcopal Church, the first thing that you do is you get psychologically run up and down. You spend two oh. days between therapists, psychiatrists, and exploring like, is this person have the mental fitness to, to manage this? And yeah. So I went through this, had this lovely woman, it was in Arlington, Texas, and um, she, on the last day, like literally the last question she asked me, she said, you're going to know what I'm asking you about when I ask this. And however you answer is okay, but I have to ask, mm -hmm. are you okay with all aspects of your sexuality? And I said, yes. And at the time I had been counseled that I should not be out while I was in the process for ordination, that I should quietly come oh, really? out 
doctor, I'm ordained. Um, People were very scared for me. And after that conversation, um, when I knew that she knew and that she was going to be writing a report to the bishop, I felt like I had to run interference and I realized deeply within me that I did not want to be closeted in the process, that if I was going to be a priest, then I needed to be completely transparent. Mm -hmm. And so I made an appointment with the bishop and he, he was kind, but he was also very realistic and he was not ideological, um, probably more of a political bishop. And he did not want to take risks with me. And so my experience of him was going back and forth. Like if the people in the room were very supportive of me, then he was supportive. If the people in the room were not very supportive, then he was definitely not supportive. Very Uh, socially based. Yes. And, you know, interestingly, so for after that, for a year, I would spend one week in a month with everyone who is um, in, in some sort of process for ordination. And there was this guy, he was, you know, six foot three, four, and big hulking guy, like imposing, like threatening. Mm -hmm. And he would sit down at dinner every time right by me. And he annoyed the heck out of me. (laughs) And he would, he was a person who was a New York, uh, New York City, Oklahoma City cop. And, oh, okay. And he would like to tell off-color stories about the gay beat in Oklahoma City. You know, stories about things like, well, there were these three guys and they were having a threesome. And when I showed up, three of them ran out. Two of them were in pantyhose. And, you know, and Mm -hmm. and telling very unkind stories. Unhandedly, like, underhandedly, like, jabbing at you, essentially. Jabbing at me and doing so in front of the bishop. And, you know, it's interesting to note that in the second year of seminary, I got a letter from Paul, who now identified as Paula. Oh, wow. So she was taking all of her own stuff and throwing it. Projecting it. Mm -hmm. And I had lots of experiences of that. Um, The worst of which was a horrible thing. In your second year of seminary, you go home to your home diocese and you... Um, the seminary has sent reviews of you um, and your grades and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And you have to meet with basically the board of the entire diocese, what's called the standing committee. And so on a Saturday morning in November, we were all greeted. There were five of us. And it was like 11 in the morning. And they said, these interviews are going to be so short. Um, they're going to be like 10 minutes each. And then we're all going to go out to lunch. And so I was the second person. Luke Back was the first. It's kind of the golden straight boy. Ah, um, uh, yes. Of course, he was out in five minutes. And I go in, and unbeknownst to me, I don't know why my file had been stripped of any reference to my sexuality. It was really, and so all of my essays, autobiographies, sort of stuff, everything had been stripped of being gay. And so when someone asked, well, why did you go to New York? Because it was odd to go that far away. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, because I'm openly gay and I needed to know from leaders and professors who are openly gay, um, how to do that. Um, That ignited what was a two hour, can I say 
show, I remember very distinctly this man who my gaydar was pinging on, um, but clearly not out to himself or to others. Right. He stood up and he slammed the desk and the table and he said, I'll be damned if I let this faggot get ordained. Oh, wow. And the leader of the standing committee, this woman who I've known for a long time was very weak. She could not control the meeting. It quickly spun out of control. And I was asked to leave the room. And so everyone's preparing for diocesan convention outside. Like there are all these decorations moving back and forth and processional right. and all that sort of Both stuff. Be happy. And I'm sitting there in front of this door while they're yelling about me. And it went on for two hours. After two hours, people stream out, making no eye contact, not whatever. The president of the standing committee said that I had been approved, um, though, of course, not unanimously. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, that I was going to have to be celibate. And, oh, no. you know, like my life was on the line. What was I going to do? Um, I certainly didn't tell them that I was in a relationship at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know... It, it was a very difficult, traumatizing sort of thing. I do remember that at the end of the meeting, I walked outside and there were two members of the committee who were Native American and they were sitting by the church sign and they were smoking cigarettes and they offered me one and I took it. And <laughs> smoking and they were just like, you know, they used to do this to us too. And- Oh, wow. Feeling of solidarity um, of, you know, this intelligence that we uh, as LGBTQ people have that um, that the people who hate us or try and put us in boxes really just haven't done their own work and it's their mm. own crap and it's not us and we see it about them in a way that is powerful and they don't see it about themselves. Right, it's this clarity uh, and and also this connection with other minority groups that you just see how things can be so wrong at some points. Yes, and how they're deriving their sense of goodness or um, a sense of self based on hating another group. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow, <laughs> that I can't imagine going through that experience. It, it must have been really disheartening knowing that you felt this call and knowing that your faith was there and that it wasn't like not that the two were separate but they could be together without clashing you know i had i certainly had a lot of fear i also had a very profound sense of righteousness you know like mm -hmm. i knew this was wrong and and it was good that I was at seminary in New York and I was working in a parish that was um, mostly gay men, um, though two, few trans folks um, that had been forged through the, the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. And they were very much a strong community, um, but there was no kind of in between. Like I was either in Oklahoma or I was in this totally accepting, amazing world. And the two could not understand each other. You know, I, I remember right. most people at that church just saying, tell them to f off. Oh and, my goodness. I mean, like those are the direct words of my priest mentor. Um, but if I did that in our canonical format, you have to then not do anything in the process for two years. And so I was damned if I was 
not going to be ordained by the people who had raised me and taught me about a loving God who loved me if I was gay mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, so going back to you mentioning multiple places or multiple times in your career, um, people had asked you to be celibate. And of course, there's a big clash between um, Christian faith, or at least um, what people speak and use to oppose gay marriage. Like, if they clash a lot. And what, are you, what do you respond to these people saying that um, marriage can only be with a man and a woman? It was God's plan. How, how do you respond to things like that? Um, you know, I think someone who's deeply entrenched by that is only going to change their mind if their heart is opened. Mm. And what I feel in that is the pain of the closed hearts who cannot see that my relationship or your relationship are loving and caring and beautiful, um, that they're close to that. And I, I feel that pain. You know, I do remember in that very meeting, someone asked me if I would be willing to be celibate. And I, I told them this, I said, you know, for one Lent, I gave up speaking. And, and so I was not entirely quiet for that Lent because I failed at that spiritual discipline. Mm -hmm. if, if they're asking me as a gay man to be celibate as a spiritual discipline, that's something I'm willing to engage, but they needed to realize I was going to fail because that's part of the point. And I think, you know, what, what so many people want to do is with gay folks to just turn off our sexuality right. when that's an integral part of who we are and we cannot turn that off. And to do so is at our peril. And, and so really at this point, I'm not sure I care much about them. <laughs> I, care, I care about my family and I right. care about um, the legal rights for my family to exist, but mm -hmm. I'm not going to change them per se, but I will have an open heart to meet them if they ever have an opening in their heart. Right. So it's just about being open to the experiences of others and just being willing to talk about it, I guess, is, is really what it comes down to, I guess. Well, and I understand it this way, you know, sexuality is freaky, you know, right. We all have wild and different sort of um, inner freaks in ourselves. <laughs> and one of the ways that gets expressed is through sexuality. And I think a lot of um, straight folks or folks who haven't done their work emotionally, they, they don't want to acknowledge that reality or they want it to hide or to be behind closed doors. And, you know, and we represent a, a direct threat to that because we at some level have to be open about, okay, we have a sexuality that is not um, typical, um, mm -hmm. isn't the majority and, and that's okay. And for them to be able to accept us, they would have to accept themselves first. Mm. So it's a reflection of like what 
they need to talk about and what others like in the public need to talk about is just sexuality in general, just that it needs to be a more open topic so that it doesn't yes. have to be so different. I think um, Jean Robinson was the first um, openly gay bishop in the Episcopal Church. He was elected in 2003. Mm. Um, and he was a mentor of mine while I was in seminary and really helped me na navigate things. But I distinctly remember the last time I heard him speak to a congregation it was in Kentucky. And he said, I'm tired of explaining this to you straight people. You need to do your work. And I think just like um, white folks right now in our current um, climate need to be doing our work of studying the history and legacy that we have inherited of racism and slavery and white supremacy, um, straight folks, sorry, you all need to do your own work. <laughs> right, and it's not the job necessarily of uh, people in the LGBTQ community to go out and educate others, even though that's something, like you said, that we bear in some aspect, right, is, is helping other people understand, but it does get tiring a little bit. It can be wearying, mm -hmm. and, you know, again, I'm willing to take that on in certain places and certain times, but I have to be able to choose it. Right, right. Now, you so you've been you said um that bishop was elected in 2003 correct yes so it's been a little while now it's 2020 do you feel as if the episcopal church or even christianity in general has kind of started to turn more to acceptance or are we still seeing a lot of just tolerance um well in terms of i can speak to the episcopal church yes and you know Every three years, the church, each diocese sends eight representatives plus a bishop to a meeting that lasts about 12 to 14 days. And I noticed, so that body had to approve Gene Robinson's consecration as a bishop. And it, it did so, but it did so narrowly. The next general convention was a completely different reality. Um, mm -hmm. Everything that was pro um, LGBTQ was just passed with a supermajority. Mm -hmm. And it's been that way ever since. And, you know, sadly, we paid that price in the Diocese of Fort Worth because a, a majority of congregations left the Episcopal Church over those realities. But the Episcopal Church is standing strong as an ally. And I do believe that. And I feel supported. Um, as a, a gay priest in ways that I never had early on. That said, wider Christianity, you know, what I know about humanity is that when there is division and chaos and um, people can't get along, that the easiest way to settle that is to have a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And LGBTQ folks have been a very convenient scapegoat to especially conservative Christians and has been kind of red meat to their base and they love it and they get enough of it and yeah. makes them feel morally superior. And, you know, 
that unfortunately has been a strand of Christianity since the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. when within a few generations they wanted to blame the Jews or they wanted, right. you know, and, and it's just, it's a human reality and it will always come up in religion. And unfortunately we have been the victims of that and continue to be in many circles. I'm glad to be in my space of Christianity. <laughs> right. Um, that is not locked up in that fear. I want to address something. Uh, I'm sure all the listeners are kind of wondering about it. Um, it is brought up a lot is the textual, uh, the biblical te texts that discount or oppose homosexuality. Right. Um, what do you say to these folks? Like, um, how, how do you respond to that? Like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, or um, Leviticus is another one that I've seen. So Sodom and Gomorrah, um, if you really read the text, is about inhospitality. It is not about homosexuality, which is not even mentioned. Um, it's about inhospitality. And the Old Testament is very clear in moving people toward hospitality, which was a Middle Eastern ancient virtue. Um, mm. That you had a responsibility if someone showed up at your doorstep to take care of them. And the people in Sodom and Gomorrah did not do that. And now, interestingly, there is um, actual um, artifactual evidence that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by a comet or by a meteorite. Wow. Um, so, you know, the story might be just sort of trying to explain that in, in one way or another anyway, but um, it was not about man-on-man um, -man action. The same could not be said for Leviticus, but the section of Leviticus in which um, the, the scripture comes is actually in a section called and referred to by scholars as the Holiness Code. And that is because Leviticus um, was meant to be a manual about how to be a temple priest. And so these rules applied to temple priests and why they were mentioned um, in this context was because, you know, Israel was constantly in this position of they were kind of an underdog and, you know, they were at the center of all these trade routes. So everyone wanted a piece of Israel, um, but they found it hard to do that. But so all these other cultures are interacting along these trade routes and the other cultures, for the most part, what we know about them practiced um, temple prostitution, meaning that um, there were gods of fertility, and the idea was that you would go and you would get laid, and that would mm -hmm. that would promote your chances of actually having your wife get pregnant. Wow. And it was an, a divine sort of transaction. And so, what I think Leviticus is about is saying, "Don't do that." I don't right. think not saying, I do not think that they are saying that Brad and Frank should. To have two cats and get married and have a kid with a couple of lesbians. I don't think they <laughs> think about that at all. Right. You know, the other thing I would say is there used to be a pamphlet in the Episcopal Church that said on the front, what did Jesus say about homosexuality? And you open it up and it said nothing. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, Jesus never referred to homosexuality. Now, Paul does, but that's an even more interesting sort of thing because most people who want to quote Paul as being against homosexuality, they want to do something called text proofing. They want to take like 
a, a sentence and they take it out of context and then they use that as a weapon. Mm-hmm. If you read Romans as a whole, you see what's happening is, um, Douglas Campbell is the best scholar on this, but um, that what Paul is doing is that he's using an ancient oratorical device, meaning that he states the position of his opponent and then he states his own position. And That's so Romans one, Romans 1 through 4 um, is all very much against gay folks and all that sort of stuff. But in chapter 5, I believe, now I'm Episcopalian, so getting right chapters and verses is never a good thing. <laughs> chapter 5, he says, and you do all the same stuff yourself. And then says, therefore, love one another. And so it's like this diatribe against um, what others had been saying. Mm-hmm. And so to judge each other and to say this person has the grace of God and this person doesn't. But he's saying, you know what? We're all fallen. Love one another. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what a wonderful world it would be if we heeded that advice. Right. It It definitely would. So it's interesting. It's it's almost like when uh, you're in grade school and you're trying to figure out the, like, and analyze a text truly. Um, and they make you write those funny book reports and everything, but a lot of people aren't really analyzing the text truly and biblically. biblically. Well, that's fair in a sense. I mean, you know, most Christian traditions that we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. They became their traditions because they rejected the scientific revolution and the enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And that's where they got their start. And it is still in their DNA. And so part of that includes the inability to see a historical contextual understanding and reading of biblical scriptures. They just want it to all be there and it to be straightforward. It says it right there in the text. And let alone that in the last hundred years, we know so much more about these ancient languages and we know so much more about their lives um, because of archeology. span And that needs to inform our reading of the Bible and our understanding. I mean, that and the fact that, you know, homosexuality was a word that was invented in the- um, 1900s? Like after the Civil War, so to right. apply it and to um, translate texts as referring to that is really mistaken. Um, I believe that most of those texts refer to temple prostitution. Mm. So it it's definitely has a lot to do with uh, just the translation differences um, in our vocabulary now versus back then as well. Now, if someone did want to learn or reevaluate some of these verses and some of these beliefs, how would you suggest that they go about it? If the listeners want to see, like, read, look at things. I would really recommend Googling James Allison, and it's one L in Allison, um, James Allison on LGBTQ and scripture, I believe. It was a conversation that he had at the Episcopal Seminary of the Southwest in Austin. And he dissects every one of those texts way better and way more thoroughly than I could. And he's funny Mm -hmm. as hell. 
And, um, you know, he really begins with, you know, how scripture, how we have often used scripture to um, reflect what we want to see happen rather than what's actually there. And he begins by dissecting something that I didn't know was the most often quoted scripture in written sermons in the 19th century. And it was a scripture um, from Genesis that was warped and misused to reinforce that um, black folks should always be enslaved. Oh, wow. And really? so, yes. And so, you know, they're still doing some of that um, with gay folks and with women. Mm -hmm. And indigenous people. And <laughs> Absolutely. Now, on a different note, what would you say to LGBTQ people who have had bad experiences in the church? Like, what, how, would, how would you go about talking to them and telling them how to recover from bad things that have happened to them in regards to that? I guess the first thing I would say is that the answer to bad religion is not no religion. Mm. So that if you have a connection to the divine or have wanted a connection to the divine, that is possible between you and God. You know, I don't have to be a part of it. And <laughs> if you would like to be a part of um, a community, then you should do your homework and make sure that they have taken ally stances and make sure that they've put their money where their mouth is and do the hard work of accepting them, their own selves and you and be leery. You know, I, probably one of our most committed members who is gay and comes from uh, another tradition that is very harmful kept coming back and sitting in the pews like this, you know, just arms, right, arms crossed, very, you know, and after every service, he would ask me, why are you doing that? You know, and it was very antagonistic. And it was whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the guy's in seminary now. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. Um, That's a big wanna, change. He doesn't want to be a priest, but he wants to do good work in the name of God. And, and I think that, there are places for us, for all of us. And, you know, in these divided times, I think we all need connection with one another at a deeper level than many connections go. And church can be one part of that mix um, mm -hmm. to connect to not only God, but your neighbor. And, you know, the other thing I would say is that try and find a church that's outreach focused, that, that serves the community. Um, because if you want a community that could help you, um, then it's a community interested in helping. Hmm. All right, well, I don't have any more questions for you. Um, thank you so much for all your responses and uh, thank you for coming uh, on. Thank you for having me. All right, is there anything else you'd like to tell the listeners? Just. You know, Desmond Tutu, who ended um, apartheid or helped in apartheid in South Africa, whenever he meets anyone, he hugs them and says, I love you. 
And, you know, same is true, I think, for me and for others, just to say and to know you are loved. And that is beyond my comprehension, but is my experience. And if you are suffering, I feel a deep connection to you. I want to help. And there are plenty of others who do. I would again like to thank Father Brad for joining us on the show for that interview. He gave really good answers and some really in-depth things to think about. I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys did as well. This is definitely not the end of the conversation with LGBTQ plus people and religion. Hopefully we'll have another part for you guys if you didn't get your question answered. Why don't you just send us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at theplanet100.7. That's also where you can find updates on the show. That is the radio station we are based out of. Be sure to check back for the next episode when I am joined by Dr. Del Carmen, an expert in criminology, as we discuss the law enforcement perspective on racial profiling and the current civil rights climate. Now, until next time, folks, be safe and take care. This has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from AJ Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.